847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. In this episode, I'm continuing on to the next leg of a multi-part deep dive into the music of science fiction cinema through the decades, with my focus today being the 1960s. So this is part two of the evolving sounds of science fiction cinema, and as before, this isn't meant to be an exhaustive or definitive overview in any sense of the word, but instead consists of my own observations on how music for the science fiction genre developed and cultivated its own distinctiveness over time. In fact, in reflecting back to the last episode, I'm already aware of certain notable films and composers that I completely neglected to mention. For instance, composer Albert Glasser, who was a musical staple of many of those 1950s B-pictures, like The Amazing Colossal Man and Earth vs. the Spider, I totally left him out. But let's keep moving on, shall we? To briefly recap, we've traveled through the 1950s scores, which were brimming with electric violins, theremins, nova chords, jarring stinger chords, and harsh onslaughts of brass and percussion. Wrapping up as I did with two 1959 offerings, Miklos Rocha's broadly melodic, The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, and Bernard Herrmann's unusually low-range approach, to journey to the center of the earth. Now, will any of these musical attributes continue into scores from the 1960s? I think you'll soon hear that what persisted is an anything-goes quality to the music for science fiction in this next decade. Certainly, a number of the genre's other attributes carried on from the 1950s, including the marauding giant monsters, such as the kaiju movies from Japan, headlined by Godzilla, Uh, Plus, there were more invading space aliens, mad scientists, the dangers of radiation, and more adaptions of literary science fiction classics. Visually, the growing dominance of color in film allowed for more extravagant art direction and special effects. And there were also examples, following in the model of 1951's The Day the Earth Stood Still, of very heady, thoughtful science fiction tackling difficult social and cultural issues, or grappling with the meaning of man's ultimate place in the universe. This was an era when science fiction cinema could really have a lot on its mind. It's also well known that for the United States, the 1960s was a decade of troubling social unrest and upheavals, and saw the beginning of the ill-fated Vietnam War. In terms of the movies, uh, the seemingly stalwart studio system had dissolved, upsetting the, uh, the efficiently run movie-making engine and casting the industry into a period of readjustment. So for science fiction films, the latter altered their production process, while the former provided grist for the subject matter grill to be explored on screen. 
So the success of 1959's Journey to the Center of the Earth began a brief trend in the next decade of science fiction as a period piece, uh, Victorian or early 20th century specifically, and adapted from a popular classic, including more Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, and also Arthur Conan Doyle. First up is The Time Machine, released in 1960, and meeting much of this criteria that I listed from being a literary adaptation, as well as visually rich, and a thoughtful and socially conscious film. Directed by George Powell, starring Rod Taylor, and based on the 1895 novella by H.G. Wells, The Time Machine is a wonderfully engaging story in which an inventor's own time machine takes him tens of thousands of years into the future, uh, where he discovers a, the tragic destination of mankind. George Powell was a name that I mentioned in the previous episode uh, in conjunction with the 1950s uh, sci-fi classics Destination Moon, When Worlds Collide, and War of the Worlds, but it was more in the role of producer and not director. Uh, for those projects, uh, Powell had hired the versatile Leith Stevens to provide very modern orchestral scores. However, with 1960's The Time Machine and Atlantis The Lost Continent from the next year, George Powell sought out composer Russell Garcia. Garcia was mostly well known at that time as an arranger and conductor for jazz and Broadway albums, including the 1957 album recording of Gershwin's opera Porgy and Bess. In addition, uh, Garcia had also created a sci-fi concept album called Fantastica, uh, which caught the attention of producer George Powell. With The Time Machine, uh, Russell Garcia wrote a multi-thematic, uh, very symphonic score featuring a sumptuous main theme that uh, doubles for both the primary story and its romantic subplot, plus a very warm theme for the friendship between the two male leads, George and Philby, and then the climactic confrontation is propelled by this furious and jagged brass in a very Igor Stravinsky-esque mold. So what I'd like to do now is present a suite of music that I prepared uh, from Russell Garcia's score to The Time Machine from 1960.
That was a special suite of music uh, that I prepared from Russell Garcia's symphonic score for 1960's The Time Machine. That suite contained the cues Main Title, Terror, The Time Traveler, and Love and Time Returns. It was a special five and a half minute suite of music from that score. I find that the sweeping symphonic quality of Garcia's music for The Time Machine somewhat inspired by Miklos Rocha. Uh, and is also similarly in contrast to what we've heard in most science fiction pictures thus far, which have been scored in a dissonant martial or or using very strange tones responding to either a present-day or futuristic setting. My sense is that the Time Machine's Victorian-era setting lent itself to being scored in a more lush, traditional manner, not unlike a Golden Age costume drama. The next movie in this same trend as Journey to the Center of the Earth and The Time Machine, as also released in 1960, is The Lost World, directed and produced by the legendary Hollywood showman Irwin Allen, and based on the 1912 novel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yes, the same man who created the character of Sherlock Holmes. Now, its setting is at the turn of the 20th century, which is quite close to the end of the Victorian era, and the settings of Journey to the Center of the Earth and the Time Machines, which is why I'm kind of grouping them together. Admittedly, the plot of The Lost World about the adventures on a hidden uh, Venezuelan plateau populated by dinosaurs kind of bends my rules in this deep dive series, as it leans more towards fantasy than science fiction. But I feel that it and Journey to the Center of the Earth are, are pretty close cousins in this regard. Now, the score for this 1960 adaption of The Lost World is composed by the team of Paul Sawtell and Burt Schefter, and also showcases a sweeping symphonic sound. So here is the main title from 1960's The Lost World, composed by Paul Sawtell and Burt Schefter.
That was music from the 1960 science fiction fantasy adventure The Lost World, composed by Paul Sautel and Burt Schefter. Uh, and obviously this is not the 1997 Lost World, uh, directed by Steven Spielberg with music by John Williams. But uh, Paul Sautel and Burt Schefter as a composing team contributed to a number of other genre pictures, including uh, further Irwin Allen productions like Five Weeks in a Balloon from 1962 and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, the 1961 big screen science fiction adventure that soon inspired the popular TV series. Uh, but more on that in a moment. Paul Sautel was a violinist and composer originally from Poland, while Bert Schefter was a pianist and composer. Sautel worked independently on various Sherlock Holmes serials in the 1940s before beginning a collaboration with Schefter during the 1950s. So this trend that I'm spotlighting at the outset here continued in the 1961 with two more titles that I'd like to present, those being Master of the World and Mysterious Island. Both are based on works by Jules Verne, same as Journey to the Center of the Earth, and take place in historical periods the former in 1903, and the latter during the American Civil War. Master of the World was directed by William Whitney and stars Vincent Price and a young Charles Bronson, and the plot follows the globe-trotting peacekeeping efforts of the strange character Robur in his wondrous flying machine, the Albatross. Music for Master of the World is by arranger and composer Les Baxter, who gained the majority of his fame through very popular mood-setting instrumental albums called Exotica. Les Baxter was also a famous band leader during the 1940s, while his film scoring career is not unlike the composers Herman Stein, Hans J. Salter, and Henry Mancini, who I mentioned in the previous episode, in that he most often provided music for numerous low-budget science fiction and horror flicks during the 1950s and 60s. Les Baxter's music for Master of the World is more traditionally orchestral, it's very tuneful, bright, and often gorgeous, uh, qualities that, along with the time machine, seemed appropriate due to the film's more historical setting. I don't think strange tonalities would really apply here to the story and its setting. Here's the cue Balloon Waltz from Master of the World, which places the main theme for the movie in a gently swaying waltz frame. So again, this is music composed by Les Baxter uh, from the movie Master of the World from 1961.
That was the Q Balloon Waltz, composed by Les Baxter from the 1961 science fiction adventure Master of the World. Now, Les Baxter had a pretty broad range musically and often scored movies from producer Roger Corman's slate of flashy B-pictures, such as House of Usher and The Pit and the Pendulum, along with horror movies from American International Pictures. He even tackled his share of trendy teen beach flicks, like Muscle Beach Party, motorcycle pictures, with the 1969 biker flick Hell's Bells, and Les Baxter even scored a women in prison movie, uh, with 1974's Savage Sisters. Last on my list of colorful literary period piece science fiction adaptations is Mysterious Island, also from 1961. As I mentioned earlier, this is another adventure originating from the imagination of famed author Jules Verne with a cast of characters who are escaping the American Civil War in a hot air balloon, who then find themselves stranded on an island of oversized creatures. It was produced by Charles Schneer, whose projects were often solely cinematic exercises for the stop-motion magic of Ray Harryhausen. It also allowed composer Bernard Herrmann to return to the genre that he so enjoyed. As like with many other composers, Herrmann relished the opportunity to be bizarrely creative in his music. With Mysterious Island, Bernard Herrmann didn't craft an unusual orchestra as before with Journey to the Center of the Earth and Day of the Earth Stood Still, but instead went massive massive like a Gustav Mahler symphony. He secured the venerable London Symphony Orchestra to record this score in April of 1961, after composing it during January and February of that year, and increased the orchestra size further by adding eight French horns. In a small way, Mysterious Island kind of paved the way for Star Wars more than 15 years later, due to Bernard Herrmann utilizing the world-famous talents of the London Symphony Orchestra to bring about a large orchestral post-romantic symphonic sound to science fiction, a sound that became de rigueur after 1977. So here is a portion of the cue, Escape to the Clouds, from Mysterious Island, composed by Bernard Herrmann from 1961.
That was music from 1961's Mysterious Island, composed by the legendary Bernard Herrmann, a tour de force of orchestral fury. For some context, this was smack in the middle of what is considered Bernard Herrmann's most influential period as a film composer. This was riding on the heels of Vertigo, uh, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, North by Northwest, and Psycho, and just prior to Cape Fear and Jason and the Argonauts. Also, as a tangent, I should mention that Mysterious Island, both the book and the movie, is actually a sequel to Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, thanks to an appearance by its famous anti-hero, Captain Nemo. It also reminded me that I neglected to include the 1954 live-action Disney uh, adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in Part 1. It had music composed by Paul Saltel and Burt Schefter, whose music we heard today from The Lost World, and uh, also Kirk Douglas singing a sea shanty. Uh, but maybe I'll go back and do a special edition of that Part 1 episode so that I can insert a sample of its score. So I've got one more title from 1961 to share, which I mentioned when discussing the composing team of Paul Sautel and Burt Schefter, which is producer Erwin Allen's big screen science fiction adventure, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Uh, this property, of course, was eventually converted into the popular TV series, which ran four seasons. The story of the big screen Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea follows the crew of the high-tech nuclear submarine, the Sea View, as they race to stop a meteor shower that threatens the Earth. The movie features a title song sung by teen heartthrob Frankie Avalon, he of the beach party movie craze, and he also co-stars here. This song is written by Russell Faith, uh, while the tense and aggressive underscore is from the aforementioned composing duo of Sawtell and Schefter. So here is the main title for 1961's Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, as performed by Frankie Avalon. To the bottom of the sea In a sea of blue-green We will find love At the bottom of the sea Unbelievable, inconceivable, fantastic it will seem, but we'll be the first, the very first, to live such a strange new dream. To the bottom of the sea On our voyage To the bottom of the sea Come with me Come with me 
That was the title song to 1961's Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, a song written by Russell Faith and performed by Frankie Avalon. Now, you're no doubt thinking, well, that was a severe left turn in terms of music for science fiction movies. No one could have predicted we'd encounter Crooning by Frankie Avalon. He was actually a last-minute casting choice uh, in the movie to capitalize on his burgeoning fame. And asking Avalon to perform a tune written by his usual songwriter, Russell Faith, was a shrewd move and certainly not very easily done with science fiction movies. I mean, you're not going to hear crooning in uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, War of the Worlds, or Planet of the Apes. Funny enough, as we advance into 1962, Frankie Avalon also co-stars in the next movie that I want to present, a movie which returns us to the bleaker subject matter from the 1950s that being nuclear devastation and dystopian nightmares. Panic in Year Zero stars Ray Milland, who also directed, and has music composed by Les Baxter. The plot involves a family escaping Los Angeles after a nuclear bomb destroys the city. But based on that log line alone, you would not expect the score by Baxter to sound as it does, which is contemporary jazz. This is one of those examples of the chameleonic nature of science fiction cinema and how musically it can be dressed up in current trends more easily than other genres. Jazz had found its way into dramas by this time thanks to composers Alex North, Elmer Bernstein, and Henry Mancini, uh, and no doubt was seen as a way to keep science fiction sounding fresh. Check out the toe-tapping main title to Panic in Year Zero, composed by Les Baxter from the year 1962. Thank you. 
That was music from 1962's dystopian science fiction movie Panic in Year Zero, with an exclamation point, (laughs) with energetic jazz by composer and arranger Les Baxter. Jazz and pop-based scores begin to show up more frequently in low-budget science fiction and horror pictures during this decade, not only to keep things hip, uh, but it's also cheaper to pay 8 to 10 musicians to play instead of 35 to 40 uh, for an orchestral score. Another of those 1950s staples of science fiction cinema that flourished in the 1960s is that of the dubbed kaiju genre imported from Japan and often led by the irradiated Godzilla, who spent the decade facing off against King Kong, Mothra, and even raising a son. The tone of this franchise shifted from the grim 1954 original to the goofy, with the music following suit. Composer uh, Akira Efukubi returned for several entries, including 1962's celebrity death match of King Kong versus Godzilla. Ifukubi continued to treat the on-screen action with a straight-faced seriousness, and one cue in particular that I happen to be fond of uh, from this score is this sprightly march from King Kong vs. Godzilla. It's a cue called Planning King Kong's Transport, uh, and this again is composed by Ikira Ifukubi uh, and is from King Kong vs. Godzilla from 1962. That was the cue Planning King Kong's Transport from Ifukubi's score for King Kong vs. Godzilla from 1962. The 1960s saw a glut of these giant monster movies, uh, often called kaiju, uh, which means strange beasts, and there were at least seven or eight centered specifically on Godzilla. But there were also additional big Gs, such as Gamera, Gorgo, and Guilala. In 1964, Godzilla faced off against Mothra and Ghidorah, also with scores composed by Akira Ifukubi. In particular, Mothra vs. Godzilla features a strange and melancholy song called Sacred Springs, written for the vocal group The Peanuts, which is meant to represent a place in the movie called Infant Island. And to clarify, The Peanuts I referred to were a Japanese vocal group, not the comic strip characters uh, created by Charles Schultz. Uh, As to the movie, you can probably figure out the plot here based simply on the title. 
But basically, Mothra is a monster mother, really just trying to protect her eggs from Godzilla. So here is a portion of that song I mentioned called Sacred Springs. Uh, this is by Akira Ifukubi, and this is performed by The Peanuts. That was music from 1964's Mothra vs. Godzilla, the song Sacred Springs, composed by Akira Ifukubi, and performed by the Japanese vocal group The Peanuts, uh, who were actually twin sisters. Shifting away from the giant menaces from outer space and inner earth, but remaining in that same year, uh, another genre flick from 1964 that featured a notably inventive score is Robinson Crusoe on Mars, with music by Nathan Van Cleave. Robinson Crusoe on Mars was directed by Byron Haskin and is a science fiction interpretation of the 1719 novel by Daniel Defoe, with two astronauts trying to survive on Mars after becoming marooned. You might recall in the last episode that I had presented examples of several science fiction scores by Nathan Van Cleave, who is often credited simply as Van Cleave, and that he had been more frequently associated with comedies and musicals than science fiction. For Robinson Crusoe on Mars, he composed a score for a smaller number of players, just 24, including two electric organs, which give a distinct backdrop for the Red Planet and show the diversity of music for the genre at this time. Here's the cue called Lonely Lights from Robinson Crusoe on Mars from 1964, composed by... Van Cleave.
That was the cue Lonely Lights, composed by Van Cleave for the 1964 science fiction adventure Robinson Crusoe on Mars. As I noted, this was a score composed for an unusually small orchestra, plus two electric organs. So I hope what's evident uh, so far is the continuing diverse musical approaches applied to science fiction cinema, and that there wasn't really a template that everyone could point to and follow, other than the overall strangeness that was often heard in the music. But if we take a step back for a second, film music as an art form was beginning to break with traditions across all genres. Uh, the, the seemingly stalwart studio system had dissolved, uh, upsetting the efficiently running movie-making engine and pretty much just casting the, in, the industry into a period of readjustment. To further illustrate this, there are three scores from 1966 that I'd like to feature. Fantastic Voyage, Fahrenheit 451, and Seconds. Fantastic Voyage was a science fiction adventure about a miniaturized crew of scientists injected into another scientist in order to perform microsurgery on his brain. This is a visually rich film uh, with impressive special effects and proved to be very popular with audiences and critics. Uh, it was also absolutely the inspiration for the 1987 science fiction comedy Space. Fantastic Voyage was directed by Richard Fleischer, who would uh, later go on to direct the original Dr. Doolittle, Soylent Green, and Red Sonja, and star Donald Pleasance and Raquel Welch. The movie has a challenging, non-melodic score by composer Leonard Rosenman. Now, Leonard Rosenman is a composer who I've profiled previously when discussing his music for two of the original 1970s-era Planet of the Apes films, and also... 1990s RoboCop 2. He was a New York concert composer who migrated into film scoring in the 1950s at the behest of his student, the actor James Dean. Uh, Rosamond brought with him his modernistic, atonal, often 12-tone style of composition, uh, thanks to his time studying with uh, concert composer Arnold Schoenberg. Rosamond's music is often punctuated by these brass pulses and has uneasy strings uh, with them, with these mounting pyramidal crescendos. Uh, so this is a portion of the cue called Get the Laser from Leonard Rosamond's score for Fantastic Voyage from 1966.
That was some of Leonard Rosenman's music for the lavish 1966 science fiction adventure, Fantastic Voyage. Film music that is so non-melodic and unnerving as Rosenman's can seem anathema in movies today. But during the 1960s and 70s, I think you'll find there was more willingness by directors and studios to break from tradition, to accept something challenging, even when it came to the music. There are more examples of progressive concert classical techniques heard across many film scores that probably would not find an appreciative live audience in the concert hall. And science fiction cinema being an experimental genre visually and dramatically certainly can be successfully partnered with avant-garde music. My next example of an avant-garde approach from 1966 is the disturbing science fiction thriller Seconds, with music composed by Jerry Goldsmith. Seconds, uh, directed by John Frankenheimer and starring Rock Hudson, is kind of akin to a Twilight Zone tale, uh, sort of in the careful-what-you-wish-for category. <laughs> Unhappy with his life, the, the lead protagonist, he submits himself to a, a shady company, who uh, offers to provide people with new identities and surgically a new face, uh, also while engineering a faked death for your original life. Uh, it's a very dour movie, and Jerry Goldsmith responds uh, with an appropriately downbeat, uh, but also deceptively elegant and portentous score, uh, which is primarily uh, written for strings, piano, and pipe organ. So, I want to play uh, the cue 39 Lafayette Street uh, from the movie Seconds from 1966. Uh, this is music composed by Jerry Goldsmith.
That was the Q39 Lafayette Street, composed by Jerry Goldsmith uh, for the movie Seconds from 1966. While this was still relatively early in Goldsmith's career, which began in the 1950s, he had already proven himself very capable of writing dark, sparse, and psychologically probing music, uh, such as in John Huston's Freud in 1963 and the psych ward thriller Shock Treatment in 1964. His music for seconds is indicative of the influence of classical composer Bela Bartok in Goldsmith's scores during this decade, a time when, as I noted, the avant-garde was very much more embraced in film. As we're emerging from the midpoint of the decade, the last title that I want to feature from science fiction cinema of 1966 is Fahrenheit 451, based on the 1953 novel by legendary science fiction author Ray Bradbury. Fahrenheit 451 was directed by the darling of the French New Wave cinema, Francois Truffaut, and features gorgeous music composed by Bernard Herrmann. This particular piece of science fiction not only fits into the category of literary adaptations uh, prevalent during the 1960s, but also can be considered an early forerunner of the future dystopian slice of the genre, an emerging aspect that I noted during last episode with 1959's The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. For this bleak dystopian look at a future of severe censorship in print, thought, and action, Francois Truffaut could have asked for electronic tonalities or modern atonal sounds like what we just heard from Leonard Rosenman for Fantastic Voyage, but Truffaut ignored the trends and instead courted Bernard Herrmann. He was asking the aging composer not for music that represented the present, but for music that represented the 21st century. Herman, uh, who had recently acrimoniously split from his creative partner Alfred Hitchcock and turned his back on Hollywood, was living in London and accepted the assignment. Uh, he then decided to score this picture with strings and percussion, and the percussion uh, represented mostly by chimes, vibraphone, and xylophone. It's really an achingly beautiful, contemplative, and often very fragile-sounding score. Uh, so here is the cue called The Novel, from Bernard Herrmann's score for 1966, Fahrenheit 451. Uh, this is as performed by the Moscow Symphony Orchestra, uh, conducted by William Stromberg. So again, this is music from Bernard Herrmann's score for Fahrenheit 451.
That was the cue called The Novel from Bernard Herrmann's score for the 1966 film adaptation of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, uh, as directed by Francois Truffaut. That performance is from a recent re-recording of the complete score by the Moscow Symphony Orchestra, conducted by William Stromberg. It's a really, really phenomenal performance. Fahrenheit 451 was Herman's last word in the genre of science fiction and fantasy, as his subsequent projects were either thrillers or horror pictures, like Sisters, It's Alive, and Obsession. You could actually draw some thematic parallels connecting his first science fiction film, 1951's The Day the Earth Stood Still, to his last, Fahrenheit 451 in 1966, due to both being thoughtful, socially conscious analogies. Both are driven by warnings for mankind, one being an external destruction via nuclear warfare, and the other an internal destruction of man's spirit and imagination. I think what we discover here is one of the positives from the dissolution of the old Hollywood studio system and that is a closer collaboration occurring between a film's director and the composer of their own choosing. During the studio era, composers were usually assigned by the music director at each respective studio, and rarely did they interact with the movie's director, as the directors for the score came from the aforementioned music director, a producer, or a studio executive. This was a pronounced shift in the hierarchical dynamic, as directors and their composers were now gaining more creative freedom to break from the status quo, allowing for more experimentation and pop influences in film scores in the 60s and into the 1970s. To illustrate this point and the continued variety of styles, um, I'll now spotlight three films from 1968, a year which can be considered a major watershed for the genre of science fiction cinema. It's the year in which two heady, mind-blowing science fiction epics dominated the box office, while a third turned into a pop cultural touchstone. These are Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, the original Planet of the Apes, directed by Franklin Schaffner, and Barbarella, directed by Roger Vadim. 2001 and Planet of the Apes were both massive hits critically and commercially, each pretty much considered the Star Wars of their day, to make an analogy, elevating the entire genre in terms of story, special effects, makeup, and subtext. Barbarella reflects the pop trends of its day to such a great effect that it's essentially a celluloid time capsule. But let's start with 2001, seeing as how it's a unique case in the area of its music. It's one of the most prominent and famous examples of a movie's music consisting entirely of pre-existing classical pieces from Richard Strauss, Johann Strauss, Aram Khachaturian, and Georgi Leggetti. There's no original music heard in the film. However, there was initially original music composed for 2001 by Alex North that went unused. In fact, Stanley Kubrick had collaborated previously with Alex North on 1960's Spartacus, but had since seemingly grown ambivalent about including original incidental music in his films. Now, Kubrick never communicated to North that his music wasn't going to end up being used, so it was a shock for North at the premiere when the Richard Strauss piece, also Sprock Zarathustra, blasts forth from the screen at the, at the opening. 
So instead of playing that now well-worn piece by Strauss, I will share the music composed by Alex North that was meant to evoke the same feeling as the Richard Strauss piece with thundering brass and timpani. So here is the music that Alex North composed for 2001 that went unused. That was the cue called Bones from Alex North's original music composed for Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey from 1968, music that ultimately went unused. It's a cue that was intended to evoke the famous classical piece, also Sprach Zarathustra, I had the worst time trying to say that word, Zarathustra, by composer Richard Strauss, uh, a piece which ended up being heard multiple times in the final film. While I personally loved North's music overall and what he composed specifically for 2001, it's difficult to argue against the effectiveness of the existing classical works that Kubrick chose instead to accompany his groundbreaking imagery. In a way, it's as if Kubrick's presenting a cross-section of man's achievements in music for the concert world placed against man's achievements as a species from evolutionary technologically and existential. However, I do think that some of Alex North's more serene cues for the moon sequences later would still have worked well in context in the movie. The next entry being spotlighted is Planet of the Apes, with a towering score by Jerry Goldsmith, which I examined at length in 2019, along with music for its four sequels. So certainly check out that episode for more information and details if you're interested. Now this is peak 
Jerry Goldsmith, not only from his 1960s output, but also considering across his entire 50-year career. In Planet of the Apes, he blended modern tone-row compositional techniques, uh, Igor Stravinskyan meter and rhythms, and unusual percussion instruments and acoustic techniques, all in an effort to create something alien and unique. If John Williams' tonal neoclassical score for Star Wars was meant to make audiences feel comfortable in a strange universe, then Jerry Goldsmith's score for Planet of the Apes had the opposite intent. That is, to make you feel uncomfortable and uncertain in an uncomfortable and uncertain universe. The audience is just as much a stranger in a strange land as Charlton Heston's character is in a place where, quote-unquote, apes evolved from men. Here is the cue called The Searchers from early in the movie, where you hear all those compositional elements that I noted, uh, along with a very prominent echoplex being used uh, to augment the music. So again, this is music from Jerry Goldsmith's score from 1968's Planet of the Apes. That was the cue entitled The Searchers from Jerry Goldsmith's score for 1968's Planet of the Apes, my second of three titles that I wanted to spotlight from that year as examples of the continuing inventiveness heard in music for science fiction movies, especially in this decade. Lastly from this year is Barbarella, a movie based on a French comic book and starring Jane Fonda as the titular character. It's a futuristic, campy, provocative and psychedelic science fiction spy flick and is kind of a forerunner to Luc Besson's science fiction epic The Fifth Element from 1997, at least in terms of production design and costumes. Musically, we find a thread between 2001 and Barbarella uh, in the category of unused original music. Director Roger Vadim hired his usual composer Michael Magny asking him to contribute something far out, something new. However, it was too far out and too new for the financing studio Paramount, who replaced the score with cues composed by Charles Fox and songs by Fox and Bob Crew. For a sample of the latter, let's take a listen to the opening title tune performed by the Bob Crew Generation Orchestra. It's a wonder. Wonder Woman, you're so wild and wonderful, cause it seems whenever we're together, the planets 
Get me up high, teach me to fly, electrify, night with starry light above the stratosphere, bring your dearness near, till the dawn comes tumbling down, make a sound, every word we need comes That was the title song from 1968's Barbarella, uh, performed by the Bob Crew Generation Orchestra. As for Charles Fox's score for Barbarella, replacing the original tracks by Michael Magny, the pop psychedelic sounds of the time were an overt influence, as you can hear in this cue called The Black Queen's Beads. Composer Charles Fox went on to great fame with pop hits like Killing Me Softly with his song, the theme for the Love Boat TV show, and film scores like 9 to 5. Songwriter Bob Crew later co-wrote with Kenny Nolan the tunes My Eyes Adored You and Lady Marmalade. So in reaching the close of the 1960s, let's just take a quick moment uh, for a review of what we've heard thus far. There was the expression of large-scale, tonal, symphonic scores in the early years for those science fiction period pieces, such as The Time Machine and Mysterious Island. There were aspects of both jazz and pop styles occurring, often in B-pictures, like Panic in Year Zero. And there was the continued exploration of dissonant tonalities and modern classical techniques, as in Fantastic Voyage and Planet of the Apes. 
So first, from 1969, I want to feature music from one more monster movie of the Godzilla variety. This would be the film All Monsters Attack, which is also referred to as Godzilla's Revenge. This installment in the Godzilla series has music composed by Kumio Miyauchi. Uh, now, you might recall that in the last episode, I mentioned how Ifukubi's music for the original 1954 Godzilla was very stone-faced in its seriousness, but that as the movies got goofier, the music veered into current trends. And this is what we'll find here in this cue called Monster Fight, which draws on the Southern California surf rock vibe, like a Dick Dale instrumental. Uh, so again, this is music from 1969's All Monsters Attack, as composed by Kumio Miyauchi. That was a cue from Kumio Miyauchi's music for All Monsters Attack from 1969, an example of how current popular music trends of the day, such as surf rock, found their way into even the monster movies of that era. Somehow it helps to make the more bonkers Godzilla movies more watchable, I think. The next entry from 1969 that I want to highlight is a British science fiction production uh, that returns us to the rich symphonic qualities of the scores at the start of the decade. This is fitting as the movie's cast of characters includes Captain Nemo, he of the Jules Verne tales 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Mysterious Island. The movie is called Captain Nemo and the Underwater City and is directed by James Hill and stars Robert Ryan and Chuck Connors. 
The movie's setting is similar to The Time Machine and Mysterious Island, putting us back into the historical science fiction period piece, kind of the proto-steampunk category, thanks to Captain Nemo's famous submarine, the Nautilus. The score is composed by Angela Morley, who wrote music for various British TV and film productions and the animated classic Watership Down. And uh, she also orchestrated on several of John Williams' most famous blockbusters. The music for Captain Nemo and the Underwater City has a melodic, classical English feel to it. Sometimes a stiff upper lip style martial sound. And the main theme draws on Victorian era waltzes. Here's Angela Morley's main title for 1969's Captain Nemo and the Underwater City. That was Angela Morley's charming main title cue for Captain Nemo and the Underwater City from 1969, a return to the sounds of the lush orchestral scores as we heard from the early years of the decade. Now to close out this particular episode covering the evolving sound of science fiction cinema throughout the 1960s, I'm choosing what might be another strange forgotten title. I want to present music from The Illustrated Man as composed by Jerry Goldsmith. The film is not an entirely successful adaptation of several notable short stories penned by Ray Bradbury, and is a movie with more of a disconnected anthology structure uh, and bookending sequences there to tie it all together. It's pretty bold from a structural storytelling standpoint, though as actor Rod Steiger portrays a heavily tattooed or illustrated man whose skin illustrations each tell unique and somewhat tragic stories. It's another musical high watermark for Goldsmith, though, even considering his landmark Planet of the Apes score from the year prior. Goldsmith's score for The Illustrated Man 
centers around inventive variations of his main theme, uh, which is contemplative and melancholy. Um, the melody initially being presented in the main title through a small-scale combination of orchestra plus solo female vocalese. There are also purely electronic cues, uh, cues where the orchestra is ran through a tape delay machine, and a gripping, violent final chase cue. Here's a suite of music from Jerry Goldsmith's score from The Illustrated Man uh, from 1969 featuring some of these elements. Uh, This suite contains the cues in the main title, The Rocket, The Rain, and Quiet Evening. So again, this is a suite of music from Goldsmith's score for The Illustrated Man.
That was a suite of cues from Jerry Goldsmith's score for the 1969 science fiction anthology film The Illustrated Man, a movie which didn't perform well either at the box office or with critics, but as in most every other case such as this, Goldsmith's music winds up being the most memorable attribute. Now, some of you might be wondering, where have all the theremins gone? Yes, I was trying to make a play on Paula Cole's song, Where Have All the Cowboys Gone? Um, anyway, the theremin did continue to insinuate its way into music for various B-pictures, but for the podcast, uh, you know, I usually limit myself to what music has been released on disc from any given decade, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of music available from some of those B-pictures in order to include here. And there was so much variety in music for science fiction cinema during the 1960s, it was really tough to touch upon all of it in one episode. So as we felt the screeching orchestral and synth crescendo from Goldsmith's The Illustrated Man, it must surely feel that we're a long way off from the sweeping sounds of Star Wars, doesn't it? Science fiction movie music continued to chart new sonic paths, all while keeping one foot in the past with traditional symphonic scores for those fanciful Victorian-era science fiction pictures. On the flip side, science fiction set in the present or the future received musical accompaniment that was often non-melodic, dissonant, or downbeat. Plus, there were the influences of jazz and pop becoming more prominent. And, of course, the classical tracks utilized for Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey encapsulated much of these attributes all at once, except without the pop. Uh, But I think, perhaps, experiencing the lush Blue Danube Waltz by Johann Strauss Uh, playing alongside those space stations in 2001 uh, as if the spacecraft themselves were ballet dancers might have given a clue uh, as to how science fiction could be scored later the next decade. I want to thank everyone for listening today to this episode of the podcast. I surely hope that for each of you, this has continued to be a fun and illuminating exploration into the music of science fiction cinema through the decades. The next episode should be focused on the 1970s specifically, of course, still listening for what is unique and memorable uh, for the genre and where its sonic lineage persists. We'll see if maybe I need two episodes to cover the 70s. Music heard in this episode was from the following films. Earth vs. the Spider, composed by Albert Glasser. The Time Machine by Russell Garcia. The Lost World by Paul Sautel and Burt Schefter. Master of the World and Panic in Year Zero, composed by Les Baxter. Mysterious Island and Fahrenheit 451, composed by Bernard Herrmann. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, main title, sung by Frankie Avalon. King Kong vs. Godzilla and Mothra vs. Godzilla by Akira Ifukubi, Robinson Crusoe on Mars by Van Cleve, Seconds, Planet of the Apes, and The Illustrated Man, composed by Jerry Goldsmith, the original unused music for 2001 A Space Odyssey, composed by Alex North, Barbarella, with songs by the Bob Crew Generation Orchestra and score by Charles Fox, All Monsters Attack by Kumio Miyauchi, 
Captain Nemo and the Underwater City by Angela Morley, and of course, The Blue Danube Waltz, composed by Johann Strauss. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at podcast at gmail.com, find the blog at escortasettle.blogspot.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash escortasettle, and on Twitter at score2settlepod. That's score, the number two, settle pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a review. That's always appreciated. And shout out to the listener, uh, Cleve Mark, who contributed a very kind review recently uh, regarding my latest episode on the uh, science fiction in the 1950s. Uh, And of course, the podcast is also available to listen to on Spotify. Thanks again for listening. 